0: Welcome to the Pain Podcast, presented by La Pub Scientifique. We are thrilled to bring you a platform that unites clinicians, researchers, and pain advocates in sharing a pursuit understanding pain. In this series of podcasts, we aim to bridge the gap between scientific knowledge and practical applications in the field of pain. Our episodes will feature insightful discussions with leading experts, Exploring the latest research findings, innovative treatments, and emerging trends in the realm of pain. Whether you are a healthcare professional seeking evidence-based practices, a researcher diving into the depths of the pain mechanisms, or a dedicated advocate striving to improve the lives of individuals in pain, you are welcome. Check out our website. Get confident and competent in treating pain. Start today. There we go. Looking good, (laughs) (laughs) all right, Um, welcome to Le Pape scientifique and with me today is Tasha Stanton, Associated Professor here in Adelaide Uni SA Um, and uh, I'm Bart van Buchem, I'm your host today I'm a pain specialist physiotherapist and can just start start the conversation. Yes, Welcome, Tesh. sounds Tasha. good. Thank yeah. you. Thanks
1: for having me. It's
0: a, it's a pleasure. So, you have been a guest before.
1: I have, yes, team. and that was very fun, so it made me very excited about this.
0: Yeah, let's go over it. So, Tesh, um, we we just had discussed a bit on what topic would be nice to go, because we can go anywhere. Uh, <laughs> but the things that excites us... And I know your research has been on context and illusions mm. and, and especially in, the, in a clinical perspective. So are there things yeah, that excite you at the moment about that area?
1: Yeah, I think I, I always just get really excited about the extent to which sort of random contextual cues that seem to matter when people don't have pain if they still exert that same effect when people do. Mm. So some of the studies, I I mean, that I thought in the last little bit that have been kind of cool is we got to work with dentists and explore some of our illusions in people who had burning mouth syndrome. So they get burning pain in their tongue. And we use that kind of contextual cue of color of changing it blue. And we found that it actually reduced the burning pain in their tongue. So I think I just find the extent to which our systems are complex just amazing, and the fact that this still seems to have an influence in people with pain.
0: So let, let's step back sure. for one moment, so illusions or bodily experiences I would say, or well, how does it relate to pain? So I think there's still discussion going on, What what, what, what will be the the, well let's say the statement from science, in, yeah. to what extent we can say this actually is something that is about pain?
1: Yeah, well, I think there's a kind of, it comes at it from a couple of different angles. So one is, I mean, we look at the sensory modulation literature. So the idea that information from one sensory source can modulate or change information from another. So there's some evidence to suggest that vision of your own body um, can modulate or change potentially nociception and the experience of pain. And so that's one aspect, I suppose, that um, makes it sort of relevant and, and that link in between illusions and, and pain. Um, another, I think, interesting aspect is some of the work in predictive processing. So the idea that you know um, our, all of our experiences are shaped by um, information coming in from the body in terms of sensory input, but also our priors, our, our expectations, our past experiences, but that those priors are potentially Determining what is sampled in terms of Mm. things that we don't expect are the message then that is coming up from sensory inputs And so in my, I guess, idea That becomes quite interesting in the context of illusions because we're creating Sensory input that people don't don't expect
0: So how far would like sensory Yeah, sensory Experiences like touch Mm. like vision taste, smell. I think that the research has been really comprehensive on we know and you can show it, you can demonstrate that. Mm. And it seems to be very much equally to most of the people. Mm. But when it comes to pain, I thought it was, was much harder to find this, let's say, this average or the, mm. the does it does it account to all people? Mm. So is there still this area to, to discover? Mm-hmm. And whether it's sensory information or experience, experiences, are, are they actually the same as, an, a, pain, as a pain experience?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think part of that may also relate to this aspect of um, the salience of some of these things. Mm. So for me, I guess, uh, nociception might be more salient. and. Perceived as as more important than potentially mechanical input for touch mm. Mm. And so I guess I wonder with some of those experiences that are really quite salient whether you're right There is maybe a difference in the ability of other input to influence it or maybe it's more variable Or there's a reduced ability merely because actually that's that's a really important signal if it's keeping us from damaging ourselves Or, or undergoing injury so I suppose that I would argue that we probably still are trying to understand, first of all, the extent to which that has the uh, capacity to shift or change an experience of pain, but also I get think the individual contributors for that unique person and the degree to which perhaps they weight that sensory information that's coming in. Because we do see that oftentimes some people respond a lot to our things like illusions, whereas we get others that don't. Um, and I mean, That's part of science is to do enough control conditions in there so that we're quite certain there's actually something, but still being able to capture that, I guess, individual differences in effect.
0: So, can we discuss two conditions then? Um, What about sound compares to or with, combined with pain Mm -hmm. conditions? So, what is typically in sound? So, we're going to. You did a nice paper on that actually yeah. on,
1: yeah. on the,
0: the was it the the creaky
1: back, the creaky back yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. can
0: give you can you give some ideas or insight in how that relates to clinical work?
1: Yeah, well I think we're honestly probably at an early stage with sound and putting it into place clinically, um, but. We, I, I did a little bit of work with um, Charles Spence, and we looked at the available li- literature of how sound relates to movement, mm. because oftentimes that actually is really relevant because when we move, when we do something, there's a sound attributed to that. If we you know, throw a ball there and it hits the floor, we're expecting a sound based upon our action. Mm. If we rustle, all of these things temporally Sound and movement and even mechanical stimuli, touch, is often paired together. So right away, our systems are very used to having those things paired together. So sound gives us information about our movement, about what's happening to us. So I think in that sense, there's ecological validity to looking at links between sound and how our body feels and potentially sound and, and pain, if, if that's relevant to a movement.
0: Or combining it with a painful Movement, for example, yeah. Would, is that is that the clinical angle we should take, or
1: I guess some of so the study that that we did paired it with paired different sounds with pressure applied to the back, and we were showed that that pairing different sounds could could alter people's perceptions of their own back and in terms of how mm. stiff it felt. Um, I guess I would argue that some of the literature and sound what it suggests is that this is one of those context things mm. that that sounds that are paired with our movements are potentially important. So clinically, if someone's doing that big groan, getting out of a chair, that's maybe a relevant thing for us to think about because if they're doing that every single time they're getting up, they're creating those you know strong pairings that they might not even re- be realizing
0: so to, to that to that example you say we're trying to make a different sound for example or could that be an advice can make it like, Ooh, yeah. like oh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes it could be it could be even just the the active decision to remove and not not make more negative sounds like the big oh, grunts bad sounds maybe just Consciously saying I'm not going to make that sound when I'm getting up that might be something in and of itself and I think Exploring I guess some of the possibilities of sounds that does really excite me because um, I Mean sounds give us so much information like even when you have sounds that are you know going up in pitch like That is paired often with lifting Like we picture Mm. that as part of lifting almost semantically. So whether or not we can use that in terms of enhancing motor performance, enhancing movement in people who do have painful conditions is really interesting to me. So even if it isn't influencing maybe the pain itself, it's influencing movement quality. It's influencing the ease that they feel that they can move with. Um, And I think all of those things kind of have... Yeah, interesting clinical implications.
0: Well, we might touch on that later in the extended version. So, so now the second one is a vision. Yeah. So, how that clinically could be applied as a part of perhaps um, part of a part of, of of a diagnostic or even yeah. treatment part. How what's your what's your opinion yeah. or your opinion well, on that?
1: Probably the key thing is that we should use looking at your own body, looking at the skin of your body to our advantage when we can. So there's evidence to suggest that 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 can be analgesic. And so I think that's really relevant. And we have clinical data showing, um, for example, this is in stuff that was um, led by uh, Benedict Wand, that if people with chronic back pain, for example, can have vision of their own back while they're moving, it hurts less while they're moving, and the time that it takes for their pain to ease and return to normal levels Mm. is shorter. So I think right away vision, we can use that to our advantage. We might be able to use things like bendy mirrors so we can you know, play with convex, concave surfaces to change body size. So mm. in many conditions, um, changing the size of the body um, can make things hurt less. And it, that can be a little bit of an exploration because we do see that there's differences um, based on the condition, whether a bigger body looks, uh, hurts less or a smaller body hurts less. Mm. Um, but I think there's, there's potential to play there
0: yeah so you would rec- you would definitely advise for like a, a a clinician to to explore what vision does for example i think it's a it's, it's a really it's
1: quite yeah, low hanging fruit to try
0: it is yeah I was wondering whether it would, like from the clinical point of view or even um, desi- clinical decision making or the um, getting yourself into a diagnosis but it's it's a mm-hmm. different angle i guess again to sort of mm reframe mm. what what does it mean to do an assessment mm. so it's less explore it's more yeah. exploring rather than making a clinical diagnosis yeah. again like back pain is back pain but is back pain plus yep. people would have responded to a visual input yeah. in a different way you compared to another person so would you find would that be an interesting way to see how that moves Mm. to more descriptive diagnosis than Mm. like clinical diagnosis
1: yeah i think so and i think that's it's a really lovely way to sort of frame how we might look at individual (coughs) contributors like looking Um, for an individual person and kind of mapping out for them what sort of things Contribute positively or negatively to their pain experience during movement for example, and that's a lovely I think aspect of context in action um, but also in terms of you're right kind of moving away from this idea of one cause and Looking um, in a real way within a person into these numerous contributors.
0: Yeah, so from an more clinical diagnosis to a descriptive diagnosis of this is this person, this, this person has mm. suffered back pain, but he responds mm. to this in sound, X, y, and, and this is few, or this is how they... I, I can see that work out mm. and quite nicely. Um, I think it also connects very well with the RESOLVE trial, uh, mm. where also the features of this has been included, so mm. for the listeners it might be interesting. Uh, Hopefully this paper will come out at some point. Um, uh, It's been under review forever,
1: so here's hoping. Yeah, that's
0: right. (laughs) (laughs) So I I love this idea of getting the clinical relevance of Mm. of, um, what you see and what you hear. Mm. Um, Maybe there are other. I would say would taste Mm. be relevant?
1: It'd be interesting to see. I mean, I guess whenever I think of taste, I'm thinking of the social environment often, but you're right, there's that, you know, um, sensory influences of taste. And I wonder even with, with smell, like. Yeah, the odor. The, yeah, because yeah, like, I, it was interesting. I did a little bit of work with um, a, a cycling team, and um, so they just at the Velodrome here, and it, th- when you go in there, there is that distinct smell that often weight rooms have. And I think for people that maybe are, you know, coming back from an injury or doing, they have injured themselves in that that environment, it's really interesting to think about what influence, even just manipulating how that smells, might have on that anticipation of going in, on actually undertaking the exercise or treatment while they're there. I I do think that those really have powerful um, contributors.
0: So yeah, I think smell would be a bit hard, but like social contributors as a yeah. part of, like you said, you referred it to taste, I guess. So mm-hmm. is it that taste is not just like the thing on, the, yeah, the taste on the tongue, but rather the the atmosphere you feel like you're in? And yeah. uh, like, I think it, it's yeah. so
1: tough because it gets so complex really quick. But mm. for for instance, I mean, we know that the atmosphere they're in influences how the same thing might taste um, so there yeah. is that aspect of influencing taste itself but then if we think back into a, a, a clinical context I actually don't I don't know very much about the the, the sole sensory contribution of hmm. taste and pain I mean because we might anticipate if we put someone into a lab and we gave them nice things maybe things do hurt less if you have a nice block of chocolate yeah. <laughs> um, but it also could be that if if we're you know, Including that in in this idea of the importance of context and the importance of your um, your social environment and deciding to do things that add positive value to your life Which Mm. include good food include being surrounded in a nice setting with good friends I mean all of those things are you know potentially adding important contributors that are positive um, to any experience of pain
0: and Then we got touch mmm Yes. Um, That's very interesting for the clinical part, I guess. Isn't touch. it? Yeah.
1: Because I think for, for me, I guess it's really interesting to consider how um, how that touch is perceived and in what in context again. <laughs> but I guess this idea yeah. of that reassurance, I think, that often comes from touch to me is very powerful and I think often um, conveys a lot deeper and, and a more co- complex meaning than just the exact mechanical transmission of of what's going on. So I do think that there is is merit in that sense. How would it look
0: like? And how would it looks like in a, in a in a laboratory setting? Mm. So how would you set up? How does that work?
1: Yeah, it's a great do, question. Yeah, how does
0: it <laughs> to yeah. get all this complexity in? Yeah, like a control?
1: Oh, it's very hard because humans are hard. But I think what we do try to do is we try to remove some of that complexity and test it, factor by a time, uh, one at one at a time, and then sort of try to understand the unique contribution. But then also you do get some settings where you might just try to add everything all in and try to be able to say, if I have all of this or nothing, is there a difference? If I have mm. all of this or a fake equivalent, something like a sham, is there a difference? And try to parse out what actually is a sensory contribution and what is a um, non non specific effect potentially So can you
0: can you just give an example for example on how you have succeed in in pairing and using yeah. the sound plus movement maybe that's a nice example the paper that comes up with the stiffness and yeah the back, sure the back. so how does that look like in, in the laboratory
1: yeah sure so what we tried to do in that one is so we had people who had chronic back pain and chronic feelings of back stiffness um, and also a healthy cohort hmm. um, and what we did is we we basically kept the pressure that was p- placed on their back always the same so they didn't know that it was always at the same force level Um, but that we kept it there. So that's one way in an experimental context of controlling one bit of it. Then the next bit that we did is that we altered then the sound in different ways. So we either tried to alter, I guess, the meaning that the sound would almost imply to you um, and the sound itself. So we changed the sound itself by having either a creaky door sound, um, which, I mean, Oftentimes, we would picture pairing with situations in which movement would be difficult. Um, And then we had um, a sound that was sort of like a gentle whooshing that really was um, trying to convey the sense of ease of movement. Um, And we compared those two things on what happens to what they feel and they Mm. perceive in their back. And then what we did is we also thought if we shift only the meaning of the sound that also gives us more information because it could be just because we're giving people two different sounds. Maybe they're just so different that that's what's driving our results. But what we found is by using the exact same sound and just making it less creaky over sub- subsequent pressure to the back, um, we found that that had a very similar effects in that it made people's backs feel less stiff. So it's an identical sound. One just is is a lower volume, but you see, you know, Differing or opposite effects on how it makes their back feel, so that gives us a little bit more confidence in the fact that what we're manipulating is potentially um, causing the shift in, in what they feel.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. And so, <laughs> that, but that also means that you have to pair every single contextual factor you should test in a similar way, as it's far as that. It's possible
1: it's what we try to do so oftentimes when we have experiments we have a we try to do it at the same time of day if they're coming in numerous times we try to standardize um, they'll usually have a, a bit at the at the start of the session where they'll just sit and just sort of relax a bit because oftentimes if people have been late or you know couldn't find a park they're coming in in a very different mental and emotional state um, Mm. for one session than the other. Some experiments even use um, kind of an emotional um, paradigm where they get people to read something so that ideally Mm. they're in a similar sort of mood or state. Um, But yeah, it's really hard and I think we always have to anticipate that we might have missed something, um, but that's often why we try to include a condition that might have everything else as identical as it can be, but only one thing missing or changed.
0: Yeah, that's fair enough. So that, that's the hard journey of the research it is. project. Uh, yeah, I totally get that. So um, if, if it's all right, we can, we can get back to the, the, the view, because what you see is what you get. That was usually the, um, that would be a sense as people believe, but we now know that's not always the case. Mm. Right? Uh, and what you feel could be very different than, so... Let's say let's take a clinical angle. Like mm. you're feeling you feeling have this swollen knee, mm. and actually you're looking at it, and it's not mm. even close to swollen up. Yeah. What's the what will be the your way of, of giving the patient how could this experience could be beneficial like Mm. so it it looks a bit strange right so Mm. all right so watch it and Mm. and this is treatment actually so how what's your angle of bringing this to the patient
1: it's a good question because i actually think it can be quite powerful is because i think what it brings into place is you know a conversation about what sort of things contribute to what we feel and Mm. the fact that as they can maybe clearly see, it doesn't look swollen, but yet it feels like it is to them. And I think that, right away, is a conversation. We also can potentially um, you know, use tools, such as um, we, we did in, in some of our experiments, getting people to um, try to, to tell us what is the accurate size of their, their knee or their hand, and then feeding that back to them and letting them know if they were, they were wrong. Um, and so sometimes errors with some of those things can also help us in, you know, have that discussion with patients. And as an example, I think that's sometimes where two-point discrimination thresholds can be quite interesting, yeah. where um, it's not a, an error, so to speak, but you can show potentially that if they have one painful side versus another, and that two-point discrimination threshold differs. Hmm. Right away, you have you know this discussion and this um, ability to say, like, look, there there are many changes that go on that might change how you feel, and you might not have been aware that that's different. But some of those things can potentially contribute to maybe that limb feeling weird or not right. Is it
0: likely that it will change over time, that experience by repeating it, as learning might take yeah. repetition. So doing it over and over again, showing it, feeling it, do you see it? Is that something you need to, like a
1: certain repetition? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, And I don't actually know the answer to that. I think that in terms of, we have, of course, shown that if you train um, tactile, discrimination, um, you do get better with that. Um, we have um, shown that when you um, repeat visual illusions on someone's knee, often they become more accurate in their estimation of the size of their knee. Um, so that seems to normalize, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think um, certainly, sometimes even that conscious awareness of it, and now that they're you know mulling over and thinking about it, it might then promote more engagement in different types of, of brain-based strategies, I suppose. So things like the, why we might care about, you know, um, left-right judgments or movement observation or a, a graded motor imagery paradigm. Why that that kind of activation of different aspects of the, the for that body part might matter. So yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, but I think it it yeah gives us something to to raise that discussion point.
0: Yeah. So it's not just learning or education, I would say, then? If I'm uh, gonna say, it. it's more yeah. even, <coughs> perhaps even creating a, potentially, a neural, or non-neural, we know yeah. now, um, ability to change the system in its, on its, as, as a whole.
1: Yeah, because I think um, it kind of comes back to that concept of, like, bioplasticity or changeability, is things, um, don't necessarily, well, they don't change unless there's an, an, a stimulus to push them to change. Mm. That's how our body works typically is that once something happens, we, our body adapts to it. Um, and so I think in some of these cases, we're kind of finding different stimuli and whether that's doing tactile acuity training or, or various things, we're providing an input for the, to the system. The system then has to respond to that input mm. and in that sense, inducing change.
0: Yeah, it is. and I think that's... So we can't see it happen, right? So yeah. it's the patient who has to report. Yes. Whether um, and knowing, and just a bit on the RESOLVE trial has been trying to do that. That's right. Um, can you give a bit of what you have done? Because you've been part of the research yeah. team. So what what is the RESOLVE trial about? Um,
1: so it was really building on some of the work that um, Uh, Lormer had done as well as um, Ben um, Wand out of Western Australia that was I guess looking um, in people with back pain um, what influence you know tactile training and and motor training a little bit like graded motor imagery but that that graduated um, exposure and and increase uh, and transition of different movements um, what what influence that had on pain Mm. and so ultimately what was kind of cool about that trial is that it was um, a really rigorous sham control condition so using things with a similar um, uh, perceived mechanism of the way it works so so sham things that were technically targeting brain function so is I think I'm trying to remember which one were actually used in the study now. I think it was um, a TDCS that was inactive, and maybe another um, another type of intervention, but yeah. all of those things they were really credible. Huh? Very credible. Yeah. And so equal people, credibility scores. Yeah. They
0: wondered, where can I buy this this device?
1: It's great. That's right.
0: <laughs> you, then you Which know is it's, amazing. It's a great <laughs> placebo. Yeah.
1: But that I think is so important because that is probably the argument is that our is what we're seeing in terms of effects for tactile discrimination or graded motor imagery, is it potentially just more focus on that body part, or the buy-in hmm. to the story and the, the contextual cues and the non-specific effects, and, and that's really suggesting it isn't. That's great. Yeah, it's really exciting.
0: Really exciting, yeah. So uh, I think we just need to translate that to practice, right? Yeah. yeah. Definitely. And I
1: think this one is quite an important trial, though, as a first step, because that um, to show that it um, potentially has robust effects against a really well done credible sham mm. does suggest that there's something there. And then now, I think then this next step is to say, um, you know, does it have similar effectiveness or better effectiveness, mm. maybe, or is it, is it helpful when it's paired with exercise, for example, or um, how do we actually, how do we implement this? Like what what is the dosage that's required in order to have these effects? Because I think that's a really key thing when we look at some of these interventions.
0: Mm. Oh, that's exciting! I'm, yeah. I'm sure we're getting back on the resolve trial at some point, yeah. and um, it really making sense because it seems to get all the modalities yeah. in a treatment rather than education alone, yes. and trying to see what the effect is. We and I think yeah. from a, from a clinician point of view, my my own experience, you will never only educate. You will never yeah. only like doing like tr- like say manual therapeutic you will always you always sit the, the yeah. package and it's exciting to know that that well th- this is starting to become like a, this is a thing right yeah <laughs> we now yeah. can say that that's uh, it, it's really exciting so looking forward to see that paper you might uh, people watching too. this uh, <laughs> um, getting it out there hopefully very soon so um keep an eye on that
1: yeah. um
0: for now, I think we're just wrapping up. Yeah, right? beautiful. It's great, it's been amazing. Yeah, thanks thank for having you. me. It's always
1: fun to have a good chat.
0: It's good, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it really excites me what you're working on, and we keep track on you. Yeah, um, so, so thank you for watching as well. Uh, for all the people who tune in, um, you can find you can join us at the pub hub just to probably just to maintain the conversation if you like. And um, see you next time. Thanks, Dash. See you. Thanks.